at night, you don't see anything. But when the day comes, people start shouting, uh, kids start crying, women start crying, boys start fighting each other. We are completely lost. We don't know where we're going. We don't see anything. We just see water. And that's the first time we're seeing such vast amount of water without seeing any, 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 even the ship, we don't see anything. If you're not strong-headed, sometimes you can go out of, you know, because imagine things, you know. Once upon a time, there was a map. And in that time, there was a dragon. The term here be dragons never actually appeared on a paper map. Images of dragons did appear on the old maps. Like the oldest known depiction on the Epsdorf created in the 13th century. Painted across 30 goatskins, here were images of various beasts, including a dragon, to the south of Africa. Then the Epsdorf map was destroyed in 1943 as your bombs rained down over Hanover. It is only on two little globes made 500 years ago, one of copper, the other an ostrich egg, that the warning in Latin, Hic sunt dracones, appears along the southeast coast of Asia. Yet this term has come to define a time and a world that still contained uncharted territory where dangerous beasts and magical creatures existed. Now, satellites swirl, encircling the planet, plotting the course of all men. All the world is knowable. You have loved maps. You've made maps in the dark caves and you hung them on your walls. You've been drawn to these beautiful pieces of paper that tell you where you are, or promise that there is a world out there to be explored and conquered. Safety and freedom. And yet, you have no use for them now. Paper turns to relic and Luddite's refrain, and the stars are mere decoration. And yet these maps, these ancient constructs, still hold you hostage. And who am I? I am the voice you follow. I am the legend. I have found these vellum pages intact in their desert tomb. Will you unfold them with me? I came here with a lot of wounds. I came here almost, I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, let's say I was destroyed. When I show you my bag is full of uh, lines of beatings and all stuff. Because even the prison, me and my other brothers, we tried to break the wall and they caught us and we were beaten mercilessly. Omar Balde, Nkonton Balde, Vengo de la Gambia, Africa Ovest, my home. Is found in Omar Balde is a jazz musician who has moved from one island on this map to another. He was born in the Gambia, West Africa, 
on Janjanbura Island, a small island of land that for a short time diverges the green serpents of the Gambi River. Held between flowing waters, still and moving. I was born in the island, and as I tell you, even in the island when I was young, my, my grandmother doesn't let me go that much far. But my, my, opportunity, my thinking was to drift to Libya. On October 2015, October, November, I left uh, my city. For the first time, I crossed another border. There are maps of the waters between Libya and Italy in azure and gold that tell submerged stories I remember of abyssal plains, Utica Ridge, and Tyrrhenian Basin. Beautiful, benign. In 2015, a million migrants came to Europe from the Middle East and Africa, many using the same route through to Libya, then across the Mediterranean to Italy. At the beginning, there was no collective memory of this route. There were no features in the sand, warning of the first hellscape beyond the desert. For my case, I spent four months in their prisons because of, I don't know, what did I even do? They just come one day and arrest everybody. There, I understand that, okay, they are playing some games on the Europeans that, okay, they arrested some immigrants that are attempting to come to Europe. So they kept us in this uh, detention camp, you know, where we meet another hundreds and hundreds of uh, other nationalities. I saw that this is not the future I want for myself, and I have to find ways uh, to just um, escape. After that, I walk, I walk, I walk, I gather some money and just talk to these smugglers that uh, bring people to Italy, because I cannot go back. You know, it's just one way. When you come in, you cannot go out. So I just pay them, and they gave me space in the, in the, in the boat, and that's why I, 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 I came here. In 2014, 2015, the flow became even stronger and a lot of people felt not just the human and the political responsibility to, to support, to, to give the rights to people to arrive here, but also they felt that it was an incredible opportunity for us because being an island, Sardinia needs to, to be revitalized because we are an island of old people. But, it, of course, it was also a lot of resistances. Via Dante Alighieri. Ornella D'Agostino is a contemporary dancer who has come home to Sardinia with some perspective. On Via Dante, her performance art theatre of immigrant artists operates in the space where maps overlap. Dialogue in the space between cultures. Para mí, la naturaleza es una... I, I remember about me, when I was out of Sardinia, without, on my own, I had to develop different ways of surviving, I had to learn new things. So this makes, in a, makes you in a kind of movement, 
And Sardinia, it's a, it's a settled down society. It's a stone. I always say it's a stone culture. Art doesn't help because what is uh, now, in the last two years we've been uh, eat by fear and the fear kills, kills the capacity of recognizing somebody as different of, of me or different perspective, different idea. And yeah, fear is really the enemy. We even met others that are just, the boat was destroyed, you know, but we couldn't help. We couldn't help anybody. We just passed them like that, you know. And I don't know the fate of those people, whether they all die or whether they are safe, I don't know. And I saw this boy just carry this small kid, uh, as, a, as he's just crying, you know, legs like this, he's crying. You know, I want to save people. Yeah, I don't know, I don't want to die. Everything that they say to us, like, okay, they give us this uh, GPS and this uh, mobile phone, that it doesn't even work, you know? Just to give you just comfort that, okay, if you reach a certain level, you can call the European rescue and they will come and rescue, and it was nothing like that. We were just going by ourselves. And our case, that GPS was not even, there's no battery. Last Kazakhstan desert steppe, you will find Baikonur. The cosmonauts and astronauts who flew Earth from here have said that this arid, treeless place was a fittingly alien last view of their home planet. In 1957, the first satellite left Earth from here. All it is is a signal that's going out that we pick up like we're picking up a radio. It's a radio signal, and the signal is incredibly faint, almost impossibly faint. The fact that we can even pick it out of the, the sort of electrical crackling noise of the world is pretty amazing. Greg Milner is a writer who knows how global navigational satellite systems and GPS now map lives, and how this technology has advanced by way of a military imperative to track death. When the Gulf War happened, all of a sudden, it, it sort of put GPS on the world stage. In a Middle Eastern desert, buried dragons breathe fire out of sand. On the 16th of January, 1991, a US president announced the beginning of a military campaign to end the Iraqi occupation of its neighbor, Kuwait. And you sat and watched war live on TV. You learned a new map on screen. The sand is on fire, yet the hairs on your arms don't feel the heat singe. It is dark outside where you are. You are here. Yeah, I mean, now war basically, you could basically conduct warfare from anywhere, right? I mean, once you have a way to guide munitions, uh, that doesn't require you to actually guide them yourself you know, at the site. They, really, the sky's the limit in terms of what warfare, you know, how warfare can be can be accomplished. 
I think there's a misconception that the main way GPS was used was those kind of those guided missiles. There was the, the famous footage of them like going down a chimney and stuff. The main thing that GPS allowed uh, the U.S. and its allies to do is to navigate across a featureless desert. You know, basically it was like sand for miles that the Iraqis assumed would get them bogged down because they wouldn't know where they were. And it was it allowed them basically just to barnstorm across the desert. And so from then, it sort of shined a spotlight on, on GPS and it really, really kind of launched it in the public eye. So it became not only just a military thing, but also really took off as a civilian application as well. Like most people, I sort of adopted a smartphone into my life very quickly when they came out and immediately started using it to find my way around New York City. I was a newspaper reporter at the time. But then uh, during one trip to New Mexico, I found myself using my smartphone to get directions to a hot springs and the Rio Grande River. And my partner and I were driving on all of these dirt roads and following the instructions. And then we came to the spot where the phone said the hot springs was, but it ended up being at the top of a cliff. You are here. And so somewhere below us, clearly there was a hot springs, but there was absolutely no way of accessing it. And I remember sitting there and just looking down at the Rio Grande River and thinking, I felt pretty foolish for trusting my phone, but also it started raising all these questions about why I hadn't, say, stopped and asked for directions. And there were, at the time, news stories coming out from different places around the world about people who were getting lost because they trusted their GPS. And, you know, I started just thinking, well, why are we trusting this technology over our own senses? Like Maura O'Connor, I have also wondered why you abandon reason for faith. Jerusalem is no longer at the center of the map as it was in ancient days. Do you need some magic? Or are you bone weary of reason? You, you ignore that, that voice in your head for a while to follow the voice coming out of, out of the GPS system. And pretty soon you realize that it's taking you down you know, the, wrong, the wrong route or there's some confusion, or maybe you even entered in the, the address wrong. But the point is that you're not using your, your brain as much, your cognitive map is what they call it. You're just following the, the directions that are being recited to you by your system. Cartography began on stone and tusk. Now all the world is knowable, and you type the keys to the kingdom. Digital dashboards run cities by mapping traffic, weather events, or security threats in real time. All the world is knowable. We are seen as a um, threat sometimes, a potential threat to the community. You are your own cartographer, generating autobiographical maps in ones and zeros, digital blue trace lines of where you've been, where you sleep, who you sleep with, who you've lost. You no longer need to know where you are. You are here. Because you are always at the center of your map. 
You are Jerusalem. Maps are also powerful, dangerous magic. Beyond geophysical processes of time, maps are arbitrary lines drawn across representations of landscapes and nations. Places you conjured that all agreed upon or didn't. Hello? Paul? Time and again, identity and culture has been defined and erased by such lines. These are the colour yes, copies from, like, from yes. the Bibliotheque. We talked about the possibility of doing something with the down survey maps and could we bring together whatever had survived. And it really was a detective job. But when we started to look, we were actually astounded by how much had in fact survived in different... In forms. Dublin in 1922, beguiling maps are turned to black smoke as fire consumes them. Charred fragments of barony and parish drift down to the river below. 1707, and a set of these maps are sent across the sea from a house on Essex Street bound for London. Somewhere in the English Channel, the vessel they're carried on is set upon by French privateers, and the maps are lost, or bartered, or bestowed to a series of powerful men, like a navy general, an abbot, and eventually the royal cartographer to the French Sun King. I imagine certain powerful men like looking at maps, possessing them. This Guillaume de Isle, this of the island mapmaker, had in his possession maps of an island. His widow gave the maps to the Imperial Library, and there they lay for over 50 years. This was actually William Petty's own collection, um, which was being brought back to England by the family. And en route to England, it was seized by uh, French and was brought to Paris, and it became part of the royal collection. Uh, and they realised after a while, the, the, the Petit family, this is where it was, and they contacted through diplomatic channels the uh, French crown and said, could we have our maps back, please? And the French king said, absolutely, until it was pointed out by the person in charge of the Royal Library is that they gave back everything that they had seized over the centuries that have nothing left. The maps historian Miholo Shukru searched for were made by William Petty and his surveyors in the 1650s, following Cromwell's conquest of Ireland. The debt on a long and barbaric war was to be repaid in Catholic land. But the conquerors first needed to know what land they held they required a map of what was to be given up. And Ireland became the first country in the world to be systematically mapped. 2,500 beautiful maps of county, barony and parish were drawn. A perfect sleight of hand. Powerful, dangerous magic that would decide this island story for centuries. A map to erase all other stories. The idea of kind of mapping out and setting down borders and boundaries in that way would have been completely alien to the Gaelic Irish. They had a very different relationship with, with their uh, environment and with their landscape. This is very much an English approach. As far as the English are concerned, that's it. This is now the starting point from which we work. From the Irish perspective, in a sense, all that's gone before now seems irrelevant, and this is now the future. Really, it sets out 
Ireland's path for the next 200, 250 years. And you could argue we're still working that out right up to the present day. Mapping really is, is a hugely important part of, of conquest, colonization and empire. It legitimizes the colonization. That's exactly what it does. And, and we see what they start in Ireland, they then now uh, replicate in the Americas, in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Asia, etc. We see this now happening right across the board. But stories can also be maps. Little peaceful dub. And he went over there, dug a hole. Because there's no water around this country. In a place called Kororokja. Way out in the Nevenham. Dragons are marked only in the dangerous, uncharted places of the world. Uncharted. A land never described. But who did you ask? You don't need maps to wayfind, to navigate this world. This enduring stereotype of Aboriginal people as sort of wandering through the desert in search of food and water, that's mainly because colonizers had an investment in this idea that the Indigenous people of Australia didn't have established territories and they didn't have ownership over the land, that it was this so-called wilderness. Nothing could be further from the truth. Aboriginal law, mythology, culture, and history, everything on the landscape from rocks and trees, forges, escarpments, springs, were created by their direct ancestors um, who traveled the world in this dream time. And those movements are recorded in songs that are inherited by certain communities or individuals and are learned and memorized throughout a person's lifetime. And so those songs not only encode ecological knowledge and law, but also they encode navigational information that the sequences of these movements across the landscape and the description of the places that they created, here's a tree followed by a spring, followed by rocks, would aid people in being able to then navigate those places. This is a rock pool of water, way out in the open plain, in the Black Soil Plain over here. Yidum Duma, Bill Harney, shares the songline connected to his mother's dreaming country. English speakers call these songlines and dreaming tracks. Powerful knowledge, elaborate oral maps and laws are passed to the present by a line of singers all the way since the dreaming. And all the rocks, when they change from bird, their shadow become a rock now. And then that's where all these little groups of rock. Mm -hmm. All the way around this big rock hole. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, well, all right. With the song cycle, navigators can travel vast distances, connecting with other peoples who care for their section of the song line. Some describe a path crossing the entire continent. This earth is crisscrossed with human navigation systems and magnificent attention. Inuit navigators read direction 
by the shapes prevailing winds made in the Arctic snow and ice. In the Caroline Islands, a conceptual and mnemonic system of navigation and orientation on the ocean called ETAC demands of the navigator a vast and dynamic mind map of the islands and stars. In ancient China, when nomadic peoples registered with the state, they were said to have entered the map. But what did your ancestors leave at the gates of this confinement? One of the best experiences I had in Australia was with Bill Yudunduma Harney. At one point, when we were sitting on his ancestral territory, a place called Mengen near Catherine, Australia, I asked him if he could draw on a piece of paper the song lines that crossed his his home. And I gave him my notebook and he filled the entire page up with song lines. And so there really isn't a place in Australia that doesn't belong and hasn't been described or wasn't created by the ancestors in the dream time. And that's, that's very profound and powerful because I think what it means is you're always sort of at home. We know that there's this connection between place and memory in the brain. And so in the same way, um, the more places on the landscape are imbued with our own memories, I think the science is telling us the more likely we are to remember that place and to be able to find our way back there again in the future. I really love to explore places with my own kids. And I find that their instincts for how to get around still teach me about how this works, which is, you know, they tell stories about what happened in a place before. You know, they, they can look at a tree and say, that's where we found such and such, or this is where we were hunting dragons that day. And so, they constantly illustrate this relationship between story, place, memory, and navigation that I really love. But you don't need maps now, just routes from A to B. Disengagement from your physical world is an option. The outsourcing of agency is casual and established. But what happens if you outsource your relationship with this world? If you omit to create that map of intimate associations and personal experiences with your roots, your place, your people, will you have landscapes to anchor and comfort you? If you float dispassionately through space, are you free? I think it, it makes us more atomized. It's not just about movement through the world. It's about a conception of really what the world is, you know, that, that you start to you know, build memories and experiences and associate a place with another place. And it, you know, it, it becomes your whole worldview in a way. I mean, think about what a map is, right? It's a sort of shared conception of space. Um, and it's symbolic, but that symbology is important. Noi possiamo mettere su una mappa solo quello che conosciamo. We map what we know. For a geographer from the ancient Greek, an earth writer, 
Maps can be a clarifying language to explain the world. All, everything can be mapped. Yet the map cannot contain you, nor contain the dragons that come for you. Epidemiologist Flavia Ricardo knows this. So the alerts arrived around, well, New Year. The first time we posted on our portal for, um, for public health workers was on the 16th of January. We were seeing this coming. And then when we had the first index case uh, in Italy, as the regional authorities, the health authorities in Lombardy were contact tracing, they were also mapping the cases to see where they were. And the first attempts to create so-called red zones, so to separate the affected area, trying to contain the spread, how, how well this virus could be transmitted among humans. That was the main thing that wasn't clear at the beginning. And as, thing, as evidence was becoming more and more uh, present that this was, you know, just, it was everywhere, basically. Maps were very useful at the beginning to guide the very first containment efforts, but also were useful to make us understand when we'd have to change a strategy. Basically, they told us it wasn't containable. What we didn't know was the clinical spectrum. The first things you see are the most severe cases. It happens all the time. The people who seek medical care who are most sick. There were a number of people with very mild symptoms of lack of symptoms that were transmitting this. Well, this was a really bad news for us uh, from an epidemiological point of view, because it means that there, there are a number of things we don't see. And there's one thing, you know, we have to think about maps as well when we look at them. We map what we know. Noi possiamo mettere su una mappa solo quello che conosciamo. Within two days, I was sent to Lombardy. So, yeah, those first days, I, I was rationally aware of what was happening, but I wasn't emotionally aware. I felt I was operating like in the simulations we often do for this type of event. I think when it really struck home was when I returned home and the lockdown started. Uh, I think it was the empty streets that really made me realize how big this was and how much it was affecting our lives um, and how our personal space has changed. Suddenly, activities and places that you felt familiar with and that belong to you, that don't belong to you anymore. And, and I really felt it. We had also other visual events in Italy that were very, very emotional. And one of them was, uh, for example, the military um, uh, autovans that left Bergamo because there was no place where to bury the dead. I think there are some of those images that uh, really struck emotionally. And when those happened, it, I think it hit home, like how big this was and that we might lose our loved ones. You know, it, it could really hit home. Um, and we had to somehow prepare for that idea. But until then, I was just moving somehow with my head and not with the rest of it.
when you see your Google map, you know that in that position there is uncertainty. At some level, you know, but we never think about it. This is telling us I'm here, I'm here. It's, I'm sure that this is where I am. Although we all know that in any estimate, in any, in any measurement, there is, there is uncertainty. So that you're here in a range of X meters. But we, we don't really rationally take that into account. We don't often think back to you know, how much of that information is, um, is provided by what is not there. Uh, or the, how large the dot is, for example, that's giving you a measure of uncertainty. Uh, we never do that. Um, I don't do that when I, when I use a map. And I think COVID-19 taught us how much uncertainty is important as well. And so to our last map. I have brought you to my beginning over 255 million years ago. This was where the first dragons appeared. The air is hot, noisy still with insects. I can see the oceans to the west and east. Well, I think that the, the world should be a free place. The conifers are dying, but the great dying, the great extinction, has only begun. To the south of the central mountains, I have been told a vast desert has appeared. Everybody should go where you want and just be abiding, just abide by the laws of that specific place that you find yourself. If you are not against, if you are not doing any bad, certain things shouldn't happen to you, you know. The mapmaker Abraham Ortles was the first in your time to consider that the lands had drifted apart. But it was Alfred Wegener who named this map for you. This is Pangaea, all Earth, the last supercontinent in the last time the continents were one. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, I don't have a word to describe that moment, but it was even a joyful moment for me after arriving here alive because at certain point we were all fed up. We just wanted to throw ourselves in the water just to swim somewhere and get to the land and go away. We are making our way across land from Tunisia to Sardinia. If you trace your political lines across the map of Pangaea, there are many land borders between Europe and Africa and North America. We cross easily. I know people who died 
and who people who were with me in the prison, people who were with me in the same house, you know. When I heard that, I was, I was, I was sad because we all, we all have great ambitions. Okay, some of them want to study, some of them want to be footballers, some of them want to. We are all young boys who are ambitious in life, who want to be something, who want to achieve something, you know, because. It's so stressing that you, at certain point in time, you find yourself an African, like you are treated like you are nobody. We had a great dying in Pangaea. The earth grew too warm. The oceans turned to acid. Almost all the life on sea and land disappeared. Drought, war, crop failures, rising seas. These crisis days will soon displace hundreds of millions inside and beyond your borders. The map cannot contain you, nor the dragons that come for you. But what if the map of Pangaea was still your reality? Right now, with all these uh, borders, it seems like you are in a prison. You are, you are concentrated on one side, like your life is here. And whenever you have to move, then you are somebody else. Drawing those lines, draw how far you can go. If you are from a small country like mine, you have less space to, to navigate. So whenever you leave your territory, you are into somebody's territory. But how comes we have territories? It's divided by ourselves. What if Pangaea was still your reality? How would you perceive people and place if this map melded once again? The scientists say it will in 250 million years. And where will you invent the dragons then? If you are here. This was Here Be Dragons. This essay features recordings with Elder Yi Dumduma Bill Herney, courtesy of the YDP Dreaming Project Archive of Australia. It includes interviews with Maura O'Connor, author of the book Wayfinding, and Greg Milner, author of Pinpoint. Referencing the piece to nomadic peoples entering the map is from Wayfinding, and also Against the Grain by James C. Scott. Paper copies of the Down Survey maps were viewed with Paul Ferguson and Miholo Shukru at the Glucksman Map Library at Trinity College, Dublin. The song Last Breath by Anna Brune is used here with the kind permission of the artist. And the Gambian traditional piece featured in this essay was performed by Omar Balde and recorded at the Caravana SMI Performance Art Theatre in Cagliari, Sardinia. <laughs>